Thanks for listening to the First Presbyterian Church of San Francisco Sermon Podcast. We pray it is a blessing to you and that it brings glory to our Heavenly Father. You can learn more about us by visiting us online. Just go to www.firstpresbyteriansf.org. Now in me dwelling and thy with me Our sermon today, our message today is from uh, Psalm 42. Uh, Psalm 42, and actually it's going to be Psalm 42 and 43 together. Two chapters, don't, don't be afraid. Uh, originally in the in the psalm book, these these two these two poems were separated. These two songs were separated, uh, probably for some liturgical purpose or something. Who knows? But but we don't know. But but we can. We're re, I'm recombining them today, and so this is a poem about depression, darkness, isolation, and pain. And what do we do with it? So let's 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 uh, let's jump in. It's going to be three stanzas, and I'll, and we'll go through the three stanzas as they develop this theme, and then we'll 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 jump in. Let's read Psalm forty-two and forty-three to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, who and when will I come and see the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng, a multitude celebrating festival. How I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. Why are you so down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil inside me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my own salvation and my God. My soul is so down inside me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the I Am commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you so down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil inside me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my own salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me 
Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil inside me? Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my own salvation, and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me uh, let me bring up my uh, my my own PowerPoint here for us to see and and to interact with here. And first thing you're going to see is something you can barely read. I hope you see that there. Um, and you can barely read it. But the reason I did this and I would put it in front of you is the whole the whole structure, just so you could see it, a bird's eye view, just for a moment. I know you can barely read the words, but I want you to see that there are three stanzas that develop this theme. And this theme with an echoing response that you heard three times, why are you so down, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil inside me? And these three stanzas we're going to take a look at as we kind of to walk into the journey of depression, what to do with depression, and what to do, uh, what to do theologically with depression, and then really, really, really how to, some practical steps that this, that this wonderful poem is meaning to, is meaning to, uh, to introduce us to. Now, the reason I did this back up with the three, the three stanzas is so you can kind of follow as I, as I go through the, through the, through the, through the message. Now, what I think might be helpful is if you have a Bible anywhere nearby, crack it open because you might want to be able to look around the stanzas more, more easily. It might facilitate just a little bit navigating the text because it's a little tricky to do this over, over the, um, over the uh, PowerPoint. But let's, I want to dive right in. And one of the reasons I was attracted to us talking about this, of course, is depression. Now, now you, many of you know me, have known me for any length of time. You'll know that one of the, one of the struggles of my life, as, as long as I can remember, has been a struggle with uh, depression, with a struggle with, 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 with uh, internal emotional pain. I don't know how else to describe it. And uh, and so one of the things I wanted to do because I, I hear this echo. I've heard I, Corey and I were talking about this week. I hear it from our people, from all of us in our congregation, our little fellowship, and, and I hear it from I hear I see it around me. I see it in myself. But COVID and this past year has really created a miasma, kind of a, a, a bog, like a like a like a like a weight and a cloud over so many of us. Just depression. I, I I know some of us are have been seeking therapeutic kind of answers and 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 just some sort of help to process negative emotion. And I I to me processing negative emotions is just it's kind of tough. You know what do I do with them? Where do I put them? How do I think about them? And the first thing I want to do is just putting it out there. One of the first things that happens. And one of, the, one of the things I love about the Bible, love about these kinds of poems and these words from God is this, is that somehow it, it, it walks into my experience. What I mean is, is that this is so, this is such a great description right out the gate, right out the door, right up. If you have struggled ever with any kind of depression, you should be able to relate 
to the experience of this poet. We don't even know who this guy is. It's the Sons of Korah. We don't know when this was written. We don't know the circumstances. It's kind of, it just kind of sits there in the text. But let's take a look. And the first thing we'll see is emotional, internal pain. My tears have been my food day and night. What was this experience? And it's my experience of depression is always like this. It's global. It's ever, it's, it's like, uh, there's no way, there's no emotion out of it, as it were. It, 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 it's 24-7 when, when things capsize for us emotionally. The language here uh, is the idea, day and night, uh, I can't eat. All I'm eating is my own tears, like, almost like the idea they're running into my mouth. And then we get into the refrain here in verse 5. Down here, why are you down, oh my soul, and in turmoil? Let's take a look at those. The word being down there, it's just, just, what we just, just like we would use, it's low being brought low. I don't know why this is such a universal metaphor for being sad, but but something that there's something ugh, it just it's almost like you want to you want to you want to go down. You want to be closer to the ground. It's almost like a there's something there's a whole trajectory in depression which seems like a downward spiral. And that's exactly what this word this these words mean. And it's amazing how universally, how culturally universal they seem to be. This word turmoil, this is the word for like a, like a, like a murmuring or a growl. It would be the word for a growling. And, and then the word for turmoil inside is the idea of, a, of this. Uh, I don't know how you process, people process their emotional pain in many different ways. Some people have screaming fits. Some people have tantrums. When they're alone, some folks just get very despondent and, and immobile and don't speak. I don't know which way you go, but there's this idea of turmoil. Things just in a panic and hysteria inside that can't be controlled. A lack of an ability to control the way you feel. So we have this global idea here and a lack of control as we seem to descend. The language continues. My soul is so down inside me. He even uses, I think, a great picture of the roar of waterfalls. One of the one of the my, one of my earliest experiences with really with depression was the way it seemed to turn off my ability to think. In other words, it was it's like it created noise, and that's where that waterfall picture is so key, it's so target, so so uh, spot on. Uh, the idea there's a it's a constant roar. A lot of times when I when I'm when I'm suffering emotional pain or distress and a lot of confusion inside and turmoil, what I've noticed is that it's um it be, it becomes like a noise, like it's always there. Have you ever I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, but when you go to Niagara Falls, it's the weirdest experience. You'll drive up, you plonk, it's usually pretty crowded, so it's hard to get near the full, the falls, and you park. You see, you park four or five blocks away, and you open the door and you stand, and the minute you do, you're out of that car. You hear it. It's a roar. It's, you can hear it. It's in the back. It's everywhere in the whole town is this roar of the falls. That's the picture he's using here. Actually, in, that, in this area of Jordan and Hermon, there are, are a bunch of waterfalls. It's in northern Israel, close to Syria. And so this is, an, uh, this is actually a real place, canyons, where these, where these rushing waterfalls would come and often flood uh, during, during the rainy season. I'm mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. This is why I go mourning. This expression going mourning is the idea of, it's, it's the word for going around, going around and around. I don't know if you're a pacer, 
who paces when you're upset, but it's this idea of just going back and forth, going around, almost like you're lost, like you can't find your way out. One of the features that, that we often are, go unappreciated in depression and an experience of emotional turmoil is this, excuse me, is this, it's physically painful. I have a deadly wound in my bones. This is the strongest language possible for idea of a brokenness inside. One of the one of the things that happens is depression and and and, and this emotional turmoil results in physical suffering. Uh, you only have, and we are only given by our God, one nervous system, and that nervous system tells us when something hurts us, right? But it it, it can only it only there's only one nervous system to tell us we're in pain. And even our emotions use the same nervous system that our physical body does. In other words, it turns in, emotional pain can turn into physical pain, and it does. And in fact, as we, 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 we oh, that's too far. Uh, and th- th- that's kind of the, 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 the expression so far. So it's this emotional craziness, the emotional turmoil that's resulting that this man, this person is describing. Now, one of the reasons I'm kind of I kind of was attracted to this was, in a sense, this is asking you to 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 get a handle on what your crazy is too, right? Like, what's your crazy? What does your crazy kind of look like? What is your term? What does turmoil look like in you? I don't know. And it looks like it look it can look a little bit different in each of us. But let's let's keep pulling at the text because not only is he internally haywire, he is disconnected spiritually. When will I come and see the face of God? There's a, something's wrong, right? There's some sort of disconnect between him and God. So internally, he's falling apart. And and then spiritually, he is disconnected. The disconnection is not merely spiritual, is it? It's physical too. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon. We don't even know where Mount Mizar yet, but we know where Mount Hermon is. And and Mizar, it means little mountain. So some little mountain up there in in the northern part of Israel. But the, the physical picture here is this person is far, far away from the possibility of going to church. Look, and look at how he expresses then. Look how he begins to express to God the spiritual isolation. Why have you forgotten me? He goes on to ask the next question, and the third stanza. Why have you rejected me? So, so, all right, okay. Now, this is the, this is the second feature uh, of uh, globally of the kind of the ruin of man that I know that I experience and some of you do too. We are internally betrayed, internally in turmoil with noise that is rising all the time. Then we feel isolated from God, but we can't reach him. The good feelings, the, 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 good, the good sense and encouragement that comes out of worship and, and Bible study, none of that, all that's gone. All that's gone. And what's, what's it, what it, what instead now, it's just question after question and a sense of spiritual disconnection. Whew. Now, what's the third? That's the, the first feature is emotional turmoil, in, inward turmoil. The second feature is spiritual disconnection. What's the third part of this guy's suffering? Well, it's with other people. They, they, we don't even know who they are. These enemies, these 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 people who who are saying things to him, saying things like, "Where they say all day long, constantly, where is your God?" The context that he's in is not only an internal battle and a battle with his God; he's a battle with everybody around him. 
and he's and he's and he's at odds. He can't, and they're and they're at odds with him. That they are they are uh, they, they're they're practical atheists. They talk about it. He even talks about the way they talk. This where is your God challenge? This atheistic challenge coming from others as oppression. This sense of weighing him down. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, "Where is your?" God. Who are these people? They're ungodly people, deceitful liars who don't care about justice, who continue to oppress. Now, it's interesting, the, the poetic images here, aren't they? The, the poetic image of, of, of emotional turmoil is what? Being low down. And what's the image of these people? They're pushing down, you see? The, the idea of being oppressed is in, in, in Hebrew is the idea of being pushed down. And so you get a, you get what we're getting is a global image. Everything is wrong. Now, why 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 take the time to unearth all this in this poem? Because this poem is meant to meant to meet you when you're in the same place, trying to understand your own crazy. Now, when the Bible presents this to us, when a, when a man or this writer or this poet from the Bible begins to describe all this, it has a, has a unique ability to comfort us. Why? Because what just happened there, what happened as we're reading this, the opportunity to normalize your experience. That's very important for me as a pastor, because I'll look at I'll look at and and I, I'm familiar with a model of Christianity that always has a smile, like a happy smile on it, and it's kind of a hallmark sentimentality. And that, and that kind of Christianity, that's such a cultural thing, doesn't have the meat, doesn't have the power, doesn't have the guts, doesn't have the real life uh, application to to really talk about what I experience and what I love about this Psalm 42 and 43, this poem. This poem is just blunt. It it normal. It tells me that I don't have to worry that I am in so much turmoil, or that I feel so disconnected, or that other people are attacking. Because what that is, is actually normal. In other words, it's it's a normal feature, a normal part of life. Have you ever heard this word, snafu? <laughs> it's one of these words I, I love. All right, so my, my son uh, Ian's in the uh, in the Navy, my younger boy, and one of the most frustrating things talking to talking to anybody in the military is is how how, how they use acronyms. They constantly use acronyms. Oh, I went to the ODD and the SAL that didn't do my F, FAT right, so then I had to do it to get it. You know, he just talks like that, and strings of acronyms. That don't make any sense. Well, this is actually one of them. Snafu is a word that it wasn't it didn't occur in the English language until 1941. It was created by the GIs in World War II as a criticism, as a criticism of the army. And this is this was the criticism of the army. Snafu really means, I don't know if you've ever heard the word before, a snafu is situation normal, all fouled up. And that's that, that's that tired, a cynical attitude of those in the military who are like throwing up their hands going, this is just the way it always is. And when, you know, the requisition didn't come in or the orders are wrong or, or everything's wrong, situation normal, all fouled up. Now, I, it, I think that that's something we need to come to get scripture. I want to have like a little 
come to Jesus. I can't believe I just called this a come to Jesus meeting. Of course, it's a come to Jesus meeting. I'm preaching, but but I come to like like let's 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 sit down together and talk about this as brothers and sisters because this is something this is normalizing. Uh, Psalm 42. This poem is normalizing for us this kind of suffering. And I don't know about you, but I need somebody to I needed this guy, this brother, to come up alongside me and go, "Hey, I've been there, and so do you. We need this because this tells us." that there's a way out and through, you see. In fact, if we're paying attention, I don't know, did you hear it? If you really know your Bible, if your, if your ears are really sensitive and you grew up in the scripture, you'll notice there's an echo here. This is an echo here. Why are you so down inside me? It sounds just like, it sounds just like what Jesus says to his disciples. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. How normal an experience is this? Well, it even happens to Jesus. In other words, we, we, we cannot afford to build a, a, an artificial Christianity that robs us of the suffering of this world, because the suffering of this world is real, and our Savior knew it, and we will know it in him. No servant is greater than his master. And, and so there, there's something here, something for us to see. Now, I'm not saying that we are to seek <laughs> to seek to be depressed. Like that's our goal, but it, I'm normalizing that that is one of the places we're going to find ourselves. And I know for me, I have had to find a way out of that. I have found to find a way of protection. And I think that our poet is going to show us something beautiful. How can he say all these things and yet say these things too? He, my soul thirsts for God. For who? The living gone. One of the things that's kind of remarkable is you can go into this, into the, the depth, the, the bathos of this terrifying experience of, 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 of personal destruction, right? All this suffering, even, even separation from God, but what, what does he have alongside it? What we need, and that is knowing our theology, knowing our God as he really is. And who is he? He is the living God. There's nothing abstract about him. He isn't just, a, no, he is alive. He's not a dead idea. He is able. He is able. This is picture that, that the poet starts with, this is the first stanza. He's a, he is, this is his beginning point, you see. This is his starting point, even if he's going to explore his negative emotions. He's going to explore his spiritual disconnection. He is going to explore the taunts and attacks of the evil people around him. But what does, where did he begin? Where, where was his starting point? It was, was, was a down-to-earth conviction. This is all coming from a living faith in the living God. Wow. In other words, those things are not separate. Th those experiences, those negative experiences, and this conviction of the living God are not, are not contrary. They can happen together. He knows who worships. It goes better. That's the first stanza. Look at the third stanza. To God, my exceeding joy. So he begins with this God is the living God, and he ends his poem with God, my exceeding joy. And, and what we're, we're moving here from here, here is the idea that convicted, passionate theism, will you passionately believe in Jesus, can be paired with what? Objective ruin and turmoil inside your soul, even hysteria, panic, fear. I don't know about you, but that, 
just the fact that it's there in this poem is kind of telling me something. It's, 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 it's preaching hope to my heart. I hope it's preaching hope to yours. But it keeps getting better. Now, I, I often will show you poems, all these Old Testament poems, these ancient Hebrew poems. They're not written like modern poems, are they? In fact, one of the things I always encourage you to do is to, is to, uh, is to uh, look to the middle of the poem, the middle of the poem. In ancient Hebrew poetry, it's the middle part that's often the most important part. Well, this poem has a middle part, and this is, my, of course, that's it's called a chiasm. And, you know, I've, I've covered it with some of you before. If you're not familiar with it, don't worry about it. It's a poetic structure that that is like a candy. It's like a chocolate-covered cherry. The chocolate's on the outside, and the cherry, the good bit's on the, in the center. Take a look here. This is why I know you can't read this because the, the type is so small, but I want you to see the red part right there. The I am, there's a center, there's a center, oh gosh. Uh, there's a center uh, statement here in verse eight of the of chat of uh, of Psalm 42. By day the I am commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now, did you notice the name of God here? It's the I am name. It's the Yahweh name, right there. It's the only time that name happens in this poem, and if you notice, there's an equal part before the I am statement, and there's an equal part after the I am statement. And this precious use, he, he uses the word Elohim, an L, L elsewhere in the poem, which we translate as God, uh, almost 20 times, I believe. And, and, and so there's all these God, God, God is used as word. And then he uses the special name, the covenant name. And he uses the word for covenant love, hesed, steadfast love, right there in verse eight. Why this why this central? Because at the very central, and what do I put it down? His core conviction is what? In the personal love of God. Steadfast love of God. Hesed, his covenant love. That's what's at the center of the poet's heart as he's suffering. And what we're going to find is that's the only way we can meet suffering with victory. Is by, is by being grounded in the conviction of the power and the presence and the love of God. Why? Why is that so important? All right, I'm going to share something with you right now that I think is one of the most important antidotes to, to this suffering. And, and, and you're not going to like it. I'm just telling you right now, you're not going to like it. I don't know if you like it or not, put it that way. And I want you to notice something that... This po the poem does, when he takes, by day the I am commands his steadfast love. I want you to look at this word commands here. That word commands is very important because commands is about God being sovereign, being the king, being sovereign over atoms and people and kings and nations and galaxies. And what does that mean that he's sovereign? It means they do what he tells them to do. And in this, he commands his steadfast love. And what it's saying is, is that this is Romans 8, 28, where God, where God works all things to good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, you see? And what this, what this poet is doing in the midst of all this suffering and travail is what? He is holding on, holding on to dear life, to, to, to his knowledge of God's covenant love and God's covenant and God's sovereign love. Why is that so important? This is the part you're not going to like, maybe not like, or this is the part, that's not the way to put it. This is the part it's hardest for people to grasp by faith. 
Look, 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 look at look at look at what the poet calls it. Your waterfalls, your breakers. What are breakers? They're they're waves that are crashing. Your waves. All right. So so at, at, at his heart, this 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 man of faith in his struggle, in the emotional turmoil and, and panic, in 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 the attack of others, in the in the in, in his inability to reach God. What does he wind up saying? It's God who determined this. It was God who permitted this. It was God who ordained all of this. It is God's waterfalls. It is God's breakers. It is God's waves. This is really something else. And what it really does is it sharpens our theology to such a point that it sharpens it to a fine edge. Because now we realize we need to put God on the throne. And we need to enthrone him, even when we're suffering, and realize and acknowledge that the taunts and the, and the, and the internal devastation we feel, and even our isolation at times, is what? These are all parts of his work. And we must acknowledge him in it. without blaming him for it. And that's that moment, what I just said right there, that, that moment where, where you come to God and you realize the king has determined your suffering, but you do not blame him because you know his ways are low. You know it's his waterfalls, but you know it's also his comfort. His, he is the living God. It is his exceeding joy. It is his steadfast love that is commanded, but it realizes that the suffering itself is ordained. And this is so, we, there's something in us that will bridle again. Like, that's not fair. I mean, you mean, you mean when I'm picked on or I'm hurt or, or I'm scared? This is, our Father has allotted the suffering of your life. He has, both internal and external and even spiritual. And he appoints these breakers. He appoints these waterfalls and he appoints these waves. And we have to move towards a deeper conviction that it is our loving Savior who has struck us sometimes. I, uh, I remember uh, one of the hardest times of my life uh, was, many of you were present for it, when the death of my mom and, and uh, we had a, you remember we had a big attack against our church and and um, and I had been brought to court for something else. And, and I remember so many bad things were happening in my life at one time where I realized that if God is on the throne, that only, only my father could allow this to happen. And I remember this moment where I realized I had to surrender my, my desire to control the situation, surrender my desire to get my feelings in place and make them feel better and do things to make them feel better or or worrying about what other people are saying and even my disconnection from my Father in Heaven and go, all of this, this global collapse I'm experiencing, it is your breakers. It is your waterfalls. It is your waves. It is your waves that are crashing over me. This is a tender moment. I, I don't know how to bring you here. You have to ask God to take you here. And of course, 
That's what he does. <laughs> now, now all everything I've been covering so far, this is is going to bring us to some practical, some practical things we can do, practical things we can adopt that will help us, help us in our struggle, putting him on the throne, because because this is kind of scary. This is kind of scary, uh, but there is an answer, and that is, of course, in our crawling out to God. There's two things he asked for. This poet asked for. He asked to be vindicated, and he asked to be, and he asked for God to send out His light and His truth. This is rescue, light, and truth. Vindicate me. And this is the idea before a case in a case in a forensic sense. And then send out your light and send out your truth. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you may. You may, there may be some, some bells that are going off. And the more familiar you are with your scripture, the more those bells might be ringing. Because call, talking about light and truth, who, who's called light? Who's called truth? Talking about this being vindication in the court, being defended, my cause, this forensic, this, this idea of being somehow righteously defended in a court. What, what is all this language here? Who is it talking? Who, who is it suggesting? And this is where the Bible gets beautiful. The Bible gets bigger than the Bible. It gets bigger than any other human book because it is God's word. And right at this moment, the scriptures begin to burn with an image of Jesus Christ. You see, this was written a thousand, probably some thousand years before Jesus. But because it's filled with the Spirit, the, the poet is able and begins to speak and want and desire and pray for the coming of Jesus. That's what's happening here. That's what's really, that's the kind of sense, the real story tucked inside the poem. Who will vindicate? Who will be light? Who will be truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life, as it says. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or as Ephesians 5, 14 says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The ultimate prayer of the, of the poet in, in the midst of their depression and fear and spiritual disconnection and attack is for Jesus. It's a hunger for God to come and be this real, to be light and truth and vindication. And that's what Christ is at the cross. That is what Christ is as the son, as the deliverer, and as the rescue of our souls. And right inside this little poem is nothing more than all the hunger for God to come down here and rescue us and love us and be a God close by. But even better than this, Jesus then comes down and the answer is better than we ever guessed because Christ comes in and enters the spiritual turmoil, and he himself endures complete disconnection from the Father. It is Christ who says, why have you abandoned me? You see, you see, he enters into the crisis I'm in so that he can be with me in it and I can have hope out of it, you see. I can have hope through it. I can have hope on the other side of it. I can know that there is something greater in my God's love, in my God's power, in my God's plans than merely this. Praise. This is so beautiful. And all of a sudden the poem becomes mystically beautiful and it starts telling us about Jesus. And then it starts telling us, and I want to unpack three things that are in the text that will help us, help us to kind of maybe be encouraged in this hour. Uh, maybe it'll encourage you when the dark days of depression come, when the days of turmoil and, and, and noise come and you feel like God is far away. What's the first one? Make, make this, this salvation your own personal 
salvation. Well, the reason I say this is that I could not translate this right here. And every it's, it's, it happens three times in the Hebrew. And actually, if you were to read the Hebrew uh, literally, in other words, woodenly, just without without translating it, it says, "My the salvation of my face and my God. It's an odd turn of expression. The salvation of my face. The pani of my face and my God. And, and, and a, a, a lot of translators don't know what to do with it. But the, this place, my face there, is talking about somehow my, my whole being. It's something about God's face to face. Do you remember in the first stanza? It says, when shall I go and see the face of God? And, and what would be the salvation of my face? What's the, what's the picture here? The promise in the Bible is intimacy with God. And when the times when you feel the furthest away, you have to objectively put it out there. He is my God. By the way, it's everywhere in the song. My God, my God, my God, why do you do this? My own salvation, he possesses it. And it is personal, it is intimate, and it's an intimate knowledge. Do you have a personal knowledge of God? Where, where a personal, where, where it's one face to face. I'm talking about something mysterious here. Uh, in fact, sometimes I think when I talk about a personal knowing of God, I mean, if you, I mean, some of us must think that that's, this world must think that's insane. How could you possibly hope for such a thing? But of course, that's what we are given fully and freely in Jesus, isn't it? That we can know God personally. We can know him as friend, as father, as older brother, as our savior. We become one with God, you see. And union with God is now, now, so what's the point here? Always go back to your union with God. Always claim it. Even when you're in the worst place possible moment in your darkest hour, hold on. Hold on. Life changes its shape around you, and it goes in places you can never expect. And you can feel betrayed by your own emotions and betrayed by friends and even feel betrayed by God. Why have you rejected me? Why have you abandoned me? And as these things are happening, what, what is the heart's cry every time? It's my God, my God, my God, my salvation. Do you own it that way? Have you invited God into your life and are you in, in his? You see, is there a union between you? If there isn't, that's the hope of your life. It's the hope of this, this thing called Christianity as a religion. It's the hope of why I'm speaking and it's what you must cry out for and seek. And it's the one, it's the one hidey hole that you always hold on. It's that one conviction that you never, ever let go, no matter how life buffets you and knocks you around. A personal salvation. Do you have a personal salvation? Make it personal. Make it your own. Make this poem your own. But I want to go further than this. That's the first thing. That's the first kind of, but there's something else here. It's really beautiful. He says, let them bring me to your holy hill and your, and your dwelling. Isn't that beautiful? It's talking about Jerusalem here. It's talking about where the temple is. But, but there's something else here about the place where God lives that I want us to, to, to kind of like in our hearts, this invitation into God. It's just, where does God live? In his heaven. We, we, you know, this idea that God is above us and beyond us. There's something kind of precious here. This verse 5, and it's, remember it's pre repeated three times. Hope, why are you so down, O oh my soul? Why, and that's actually, I'm, I say, O oh my soul, that's an older translation. But why are you down, my soul? Why are you so down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil inside me? Now, there's something happening here 
that sounds a lot like the modern uh, modern teaching called mindfulness. You ever heard of mindfulness teaching? And mindfulness teaching is something that's been very popular in this age, but it comes from the East. It's not Christian in any way, but it, it comes from Eastern teaching. And the idea is, is that you can take the ideas of the feelings. Let's say you have a feeling of sadness or God's rejection, or there's three things we talked about, your own internal feelings, God's rejection, and, um, and other people saying, where's your God? And what mindfulness would say is what you need to do is you need to take those ideas in your head and you need to just look at them, put them in a little stream in front of you and picture them as like little boats flowing down a stream. And this idea of mindfulness is a practice to take your states of being internally and look at them. In other words, it's like you're taking something out of your heart and you're looking at your heart. And that's kind of what's happening here. The, the poet's taking out his soul and he's looking, he goes, hey, soul, hey, soul, why are you so sad? What's going on? Now, this, this thing I'm doing here, where I'm looking at my own soul, how do we do that? Like, I, I, how do I pull myself out of myself to look at myself? It, it, this is calling me to, to, that's the idea of mindfulness, to call you out of yourself to look at yourself. Can we do that? Oh, yes, we can. Don't you know that that is one of the things that God does for us when he saves us? When you know God, something magical happens, something mystical, something beautiful. You now live in his dwelling place. Part of you does. Follow me here. He raised us up with him and seated us with him. It's talking about Jesus. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is a statement of what you and I have in Jesus. We are seated in the heavenlies. And what it hit me is that what, that's what gives us the ability, doesn't it? That gives us the ability to look at ourselves objectively, to look at our situation more objectively. That's why that poet can do it, because he has the Holy Spirit, and so do you if you know him. If you are one with God, then he is in you by the Spirit. And what that means is you are able now to step outside of yourself because there's a self that's in you that's greater than this world. That's you, There's a part of you seated, you see? Now, that seated part of you, that's seated in heavenly places, that's, what's, that's, the, part that's, that's the part that's reading the poem. Get it? He, he step, the poet steps out of himself, and he looks at himself. He's looking at his soul. He's like, why are you so down? And this objectivity here is possible. Because God is present. Because God gives us an objective perspective. He gives us a view above the view. He gives us a view of ourselves. And we can adopt that view. I get excited about this. We can talk to ourselves this way. This is an old expression, and actually Jamie Lee repeated it to me recently. It's from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and his sermons on this are wonderful. That we need to stop listening to ourselves. Listening. And what I mean by, what does the listening mean? It means whatever comes into your head, all the ideas, the things people said, where is your God, or why you feel so rejected, or your emotions, all those things that come in, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. In other words, it, that, this is mindfulness. You're becoming aware of the states of your heart, of how you feel rejected and how other people are attacking. You look at all that, now's the time to go, okay, why are you so downcast? Hope in God. You see, we this is something we can do all the time. We can do it for each other. We, and it's something I want to encourage you to try. 
in the next moment you're in a hysterical fit or you're, or you're, or you're feeling pummeled by life and, and words and failure and all these things, you can go to, go to this poem and read it and join the poet in his perspective from the heavenlies because that's a perspective that Jesus gives you. And, and it's incredible, isn't it, that we can look at ourselves and see ourselves for who we are. And when we do that, we get the objectivity to grab God's promises. How should we grab God's promises then? In this last way, at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. By picking, what's, what is the song that's with him that's a prayer to the God of his life? Well, it's this poem we've been reading. <laughs> this is it, right? And, and one of the things you can do is you can take this poem and you can own it for yourself and its certainty. Take a look here. I will go and I will praise. It's noted, it was noted in the poem. It's noted in analysis of the poem as, as commentators notice it. The poet just postures that everything is going, he, all of his hopes in God. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't defend it. He, he just says, hope in God. Why? Because he, I will again praise him. I will go to the altar. I will praise you. You see, he is absolutely certain. And that's where this word for hope here comes into so comes into play. So first of all, you need an intimacy with God, a personal knowledge of him that he gives us in Jesus. You call on Jesus today and you can know God personally. He will, he will come and be one with you. You can invite him in right now as I'm talking if you want. But, but the next part of this is not only do we have personal knowledge of God, but he gives us, he affords us, he, he puts us in a perspective, in a place where we can see ourselves objectively, and we can talk to ourselves, and we can say things to ourselves, and we should. We should be preaching the gospel to ourselves, hoping God. Hey, you, Chris, hey, Chris, hey, soul, hey, soul, hope in God, for I will again praise him. And what he's living in is in this beautiful certainty that God who commands his steadfast love works all things together for good, doesn't he? He is living in, he says, if you read Romans 8, and he, this, this poet is living this truth, isn't he? And this word hope here means, it, it, one of the words ways you could translate it is to wait. And, and there's this picture of waiting. And under COVID, there's been a lot of waiting, hasn't there? It's endless amount of waiting. Waiting for it to be done, waiting to hear news, waiting for the tears to change, waiting and waiting. And we've been waiting to come to return to physical worship for, for over a year. And, but this, this isn't passive, is it? This isn't passive at all. This is, there's a posture in the Christian life. There's a posture even when we're depressed. There's a posture of what? Leaning in, waiting for the next answer, waiting for God to act, wait, knowing that he will, just knowing, not even knowing what it will be, no longer blaming him and his sovereignty, so, was submitted to his breakers, his waves, and his, and his, and his uh, waterfalls, and yet, and, and, and yet, always knowing that hope is the operative word. Leaning into that hope that I know I will be restored. I know restoration is here for me. It is always coming. It is always coming. There's God, help. Help is on the way. Rescue is imminent. Trust him for it. And trust him by having a whole posture in your heart, in your life, that even as sad as you are today, there will be a day when you won't be. There will be a day when hope in God will be materialized in your life with rich joy and exceeding joy, and you can count on it. And so that's what I want to do through this poem today. You know, I uh, to this day, uh, this poem, 
uh, it's something you can easily memorize because, and especially this refrain here, and 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 this refrain. Now you have an insight into my heart and my life. This refrain: Why are you so down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil inside of me? Hope in God, for I will again praise Him. My salvation, my own salvation, and my God. Uh, I, I've been saying that to myself for years. And now you can too. You can have this song in the night that God gives. You can have this by the Spirit. You can have all of this hope bolder and bigger than ever before. Because situation normal, all fouled up, is not where God leaves us. But he takes us, and he takes us as the living God into new life and new joy. So let's let's grab it with both hands. Let's hope fully and more, let's dare to hope more than we ever have before. And let's pray. <sighs> Dear Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that these poems are in your word, that, that, that you, you provide uh, something for us to see, something for us to realize, oh, yeah, I, I get that. I've been there. I know that. I know those feelings. I know those fears. I know what it feels to be rejected by, by God. Oh, my gosh, it's all there. We, we ask you, for, Father, vindicate us against the cause of this age. This age tells us all the time, asks us all the time, where is your God? We are mocked all the day long by this generation that doesn't know God. Father, a lot of us are, have emotional lives that are just, just a complete ruin. Some of us are in despair. Father, send your light and your truth. Let them lead us to your holy hill and your dwelling place. Let us lead them to you with joy, our God, with exceeding joy. So that we will again praise you. Father, we ask for your restoring work. We ask for you to meet us in the dark places where we feel rejected by you and, and ignored. And would you meet us, Father, with, 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 a new, with, with new intimacy? <laughs> Would you would you hear us and would you, would you would you give us this objectivity? Would you help us? Would you help us this very week be able to speak to ourselves and, and talk to ourselves with the hope that you've given us? Would you, uh, Holy Spirit, help this help us to use this theology to use this teaching on Tuesday and on Thursday, and 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 to trust in you? And would you hear us and answer your own promises to us? Will you answer your own promises to us, Father, to be a God close by, a God nearby, a God who draws close to those who are broken and contrite spirit? We pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>